Uh, hello, uh, this is Scott Martis, and we're back for part two of our interview with author Max Hawthorne, author of Kronos Rising and its recently released sequel, Kronos Rising Kraken Volume 1. Uh, hello, Max. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Um, of course, you know, most people know that your bread and butter is sea monster fiction, but uh, a large part of your audience for that type of material are cryptozoologists who are actually out there looking for some kind of reality behind the fiction that you write about. And you yourself have dabbled in some of this, and uh, I thought we'd take this hour of the interview and talk mainly about some of your investigations into real incidents. Um, I, I assume the first thing we will talk about will be the uh, incident involving the nine-foot great white shark in Bremer Canyon that was eating by something um, that apparently was larger than it. Um, and I'll let you take it from here if you want. Okay. Well, thanks, Scott. Uh, well, like you mentioned, I do have an interest in cryptozoology. Uh, when you do a lot of research for a novel, I mean, novels are inherently fiction, you try and base your research and try and base your story on as much reality as possible. You want to create that suspension of disbelief for an audience so that when they're reading your material, they feel like it's believable, that suspension of disbelief, it, it, you know, almost like they're transporting something themselves there. So that inherently involves a lot of research. And over the course of researching the assorted marine monstrosities that I feature in my novels, I, of course, have come across and researched to a point uh, certain incidents that have been of a related topic that may involve some sort of animal that is not known or is supposed to be extinct or something along those lines. Um, in terms of the, the Bremer Canyon incident, uh, the a three-meter-long female great white shark so that would be, I guess, pushing 10 feet, if you think about it, uh, that they designated as Shark Alpha, Alpha, I'm sorry, had been tagged with a satellite transmitter to record her movement, temperatures, and they, as they were tracking the shark, when they retrieved the tag, it showed up X number of weeks later and washed up on the shore. This satellite tag had apparently been acid etched as if it had been inside some sort of animal. Uh, when they recorded the data that the tracker carried, they found that Shark Alpha had been behaving normally for, I guess, several months in terms of her movements. And then, all of a sudden, on a particular day, she jetted down all the way down toward the sea bottom at high speed. And then something apparently consumed her because there was a sudden fluctuation and the, her periphery temperature, or the temperature the tag was recording, jumped from 46 to 78 degrees Fahrenheit. This told the researchers that something had chased down this predator and basically swallowed her. Now, from there, they studied what happened with the tag's data going forward. And apparently, whatever consumed, and one assumes that the entire animal was eaten, 
and even if only if something bit off a huge piece of its dorsal, its back, or something like that, uh, and swallowed the, the tag, I mean, most of this data still holds up. But so basically, whatever ate shark alpha took eight days to digest her before the tag was excreted and then washed up on shore. And during that eight-day span, the animal that had eaten the great white basically maintained a swimming depth of near the surface or down to 300 feet. So this is basically what we know. Oh, and its internal temperature was 78 degrees, and that was static. It stayed at 78 degrees. It didn't basically fluctuate. Um, so the question came, of course, as to what type of predator can first off catch a fast-swimming great white shark of that size, and they are very agile because they still eat fish at that length, uh, and could consume a large predator like that, and then, of course, all the additional data that goes with it in terms of what was, uh, I guess, uh, deduced, let's say, from the evidence. The, uh, there were two specials on this. I think the first one was by Smithsonian, and the second one was by Discovery. I, I could be mistaken. But uh, they, there was a, obviously a huge media flurry about what had eaten this shark, and it was explained away in the first special by saying that a 16-foot great white, which they found in that area, had, they came to the conclusion, had eaten shark alpha, and that was what had happened. And they justified this by showing those size sharks in that area, and then when one basically broke the surface for a split second, they had a, a thermal scanner in the person's scan, they took a quick shot of the shark, and said that it was 78 degrees, and problem solved. Then there was a second documentary where the story changed, and now all of a sudden the predator was a giant Percherodon megalodon shark, and this was based on evidence that they figured the megalodon lives in the abyss and then comes up periodically to hunt for food, and that it was hunting in that vicinity. Oh, and they showed a photograph of a pygmy blue male, I'm sorry, blue whale, which they said was 80 feet long and had a bite mark on its peduncle right in front of the flukes that was five feet across, calculating a shark some 40 feet in length. And so this was the next explanation on the second special as to what happened to Shark Alpha. Um, I'll basically address the first one because I thought that that, that was a little bit of a stretch. Uh, number one, great whites get more clumsy as they get bigger, just like most marine animals do, which is why when they reach adult size like that, they switch from hunting fish to hunting pinnipeds, marine mammals basically become more or less their bread and butter, and of course whale carcasses. So I don't believe for a second that a 16-foot great white shark will be able to catch an agile athletic 10-footer, no way, shape, form, or fashion. That's number one. Number two, shark alpha dove for the depths in order to escape what was chasing her. A great white that was fleeing for its life would not, in my opinion, make a deep dive like that to escape another shark, especially if it was more agile than the shark. It would just basically weave away from it this way and that until it was able to get away. I think that shark alpha was being chased 
by an air-breathing predator that she was familiar with at an instinctive level, and she felt that escaping into the depths was her best bet in terms of trying to get away. Perhaps her pursuer could not see in the dark, perhaps it did not have sonar, perhaps it was an air breather that could not go that deep, that type of thing. And I back this up by data that's been acquired from the Farallon Islands, for example, when orcas kill a great white shark and typically eat it, every other great white in that area, and this is documented, has been seen to all of a sudden dive to about 1,500 feet and then swim to Hawaii, the entire population. So it seems to be a sort of learned behavior. Workers are not good at diving super deep like that. And I think that Shark Alpha felt that this was her best way of escaping her pursuer. Unfortunately, whatever it was that was pursuing her was able to catch her and consume her. Uh, in terms of the whole body temperature thing, I think that part was a real stretch. Because first off, you're talking about the 16-foot shark. Its back barely breaks the surface for a split second. It's soaked with seawater. How is a handheld thermal scanner going to give us its core temperature, which is below the surface of the water, of 78 degrees? It was ridiculous. I mean physically impossible, basically, in order to get that, in my opinion. The shark is underwater. It's just not going to work. And you need its core temperature inside the stomach, not its skin temperature, not its outer musculature. You, know, you need a core temperature of the animal. And, realistically, a 16-foot great white could not eat a 10-foot great white. It might be able to consume a part of it, but none of it basically matches up. And I would, right away, rule out a larger great white as being a suspect. Most importantly, though, is the fact that the data shows that for the next eight days, the predator stayed in the same range, for example, the killer whales do, in terms of depth, to the surface, mm -hmm. to 300 feet. Now, this is not indicative of a great white in terms of its showing behavior. This is indicative of an air-breathing animal, something that normally stays in its comfort zone where it can surface and will, when opportunity permits, pursue a prey item into the deep in order to catch it. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you think about that? Well, sounds like some really compelling arguments there. <clears throat> well, let me move on to the second special and then discuss what was indicated in that one. So, like I said, their basic theory for the second special was that shark alpha was consumed by a megalodon shark. And don't get me wrong, I believe that there is probably a very small population of Kerchardon megalodon sharks eking out an existence in the deeper waters and staying away from the coastline and prowling orcas, you know, hanging in there trying to, you know, well, avoid extinction. Uh, but I do not believe that shark alpha was caught, killed, consumed by a megalodon shark. And I'm going to go over some of the data from the special as well. And I covered this actually on a, a post I did some time ago. So the first thing was that pygmy blue whale that they featured in the show, actually when I researched the data and I went to the site where it was photographed, was actually 69 feet in length, not 80. And the bite mark on it was a tiny bit less than 4 feet, not 5. So this indicates that this pygmy blue whale was attacked 
at some point by a shark that was around 32 feet long. Now, this could indicate a subadult megalon, or it could indicate a very, very large great white shark. But it was definitely bitten by some sort of very large carnivore that had a four-foot gait. Okay, that's, that's for sure. There's absolutely no indication, however, that this whale was in the Bremer Canyon, attacked in the Bremer Canyon, or anything like that. That brings us back to the temperature of the animal. Now, one can assume that a megalodon shark might have a body temperature similar to a gray white. I certainly don't think that it would have a core temperature of 78 degrees, however, and the differential between the water temperature and which one would, I believe is similar to alpha's skin temperature at 46 degrees, would mean that there's a difference between alpha's surface temperature and the super predator's core temperature of 32 degrees. Great whites normally have a body temperature that goes 10 to 14 degrees higher than the surrounding water, 25 on the outside under extreme circumstances. This is a 32 degree difference in temperature. And that basically shows you right there we're not talking about another shark. We also have the problem with the air breathing features of it. And I didn't understand why in this second show they were talking about saying that this was a megalon shark that lived in the abyss and was coming up to haunt and then going back to the abyss. And they deliberately, I, would, I can only assume, did not touch on the fact that the tracker showed for the next days after shark alpha was eaten that this same predator stayed at the surface or to 300 feet for the next eight days. So this obviously shows you we're not talking about something that lives in the abyss. We're not talking about some sort of uh, you know, predator with gills or anything like that. We're talking about basically an air-breathing predator that prefers to keep itself in that range. And I don't think it's a shark at all, to be perfectly frank. Okay, why, based on the temperature data, do you not think it's a marine mammal? Well, oh, and I, uh, let me, I'll address that too, but in fact, then there's also the digestive process. The super predator took eight days to digest its meal. And great whites, for example, sharks typically digest their meals in 24 to 48 hours. This type of long, slow digestion is reminiscent of, for example, a large python or something that I used to keep in my younger days. You know, you feed them and it take like a week to digest their food. So in terms of body temperature, the animal that I found closest in body temperature would be a leatherback sea turtle. Leatherbacks mm -hmm. are very large marine reptiles, and they are known to have a body temperature of 32 degrees differential higher than the surrounding water. Now, if I took mm -hmm. the water temperature, the shark's temperature, 46 degrees, and I add 32 to, to it, I do get this exact 78-degree body temperature that the super predator possessed. Of course, leatherback sea turtles are preyed upon by great white sharks, not the other way around, as much as it would be nice to assume that there was a huge leatherback out there getting some payback, et cetera. But it does mm -hmm. imply the possibility that shark alpha was consumed by some sort of very, very large marine reptile. And, uh, you know, before I even, like, emphasize that, I'm just going to go down a hit list by process of elimination and try and see which of the assorted possible rose gallery predators could have killed and eaten this fish. So let's first look at a giant squid. A large toothed, some sort of unknown large cephalopod. And by the way, it was an interesting point on the first special because they had an undersea camera there, an ROV that was actually hit by something that approached at high speed on their sonar, 
then the camera was disabled. When I retrieved it, it had been inverted, and the cables that attached to it had large kinks in them, that something had bit at this unit and damaged it or something. But they had no idea what it was. All they know is they got a quick sonar blip. It was very fast moving. The camera was struck, and that was all the information that was there. That could have been a very large squid of some kind, because the squid beat with that rock-hard chitin certainly put a kink even in a metal cable. But a squid cannot be our candidate. The first thing is that the super predator has a temperature 78 degrees. Squid are not warm-blooded or even partially warm-blooded animals. Their body temperatures are close to that of the surrounding water. The second thing is that when a squid, even a very large squid, consumes bites, hunks out of its prey with its beak, it has a tongue covered with teeth that shreds each mouthful and basically reduces it down to almost mush. So the tag, the transmitter by itself, would have been crushed and ground up and completely destroyed. It was not. The indication is that it was swallowed whole and only damaged by acid from the stomach of whatever ate it. Lastly, a squid cannot be our culprit because the squid does not hang out from zero to 300 feet in the middle of the day. So the squid is out. Then we look at whales, orca, sperm whale, that type of stuff. I cannot picture a sperm whale being fast enough to catch a great white at top speed. It is physically impossible, number one. An orca probably could, although going that deep, I think he might have a hard time. But either of those candidates are ruled out by body temperature. Their body temperatures are pretty much the same as human beings, 98, 99 degrees thereabouts. So that's not a super predator either. That same body temperature and the air breathing factor rules out great white and rules out a megalon shark. So we're left at this point with something unknown. There have been numerous sightings of sort of large marine reptiles that people have seen, many of them actually, off the Bahamas, off New Zealand, that appear to be like mosasaurs or something. Um, I think it's possible that you have some sort of relic population of marine reptiles out there or some new predator that we don't even know about. But we won't find mm-hmm. out until one is actually tased or captured or the carcass washed ashore from this one. Well, some of my own research, I've found that there's quite a bit of what they call reworked mosasaur fossil material from past the KT boundary in New Zealand, which is maybe another piece of the puzzle. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there were, the mosasaurs were so prevalent at the end of the Cretaceous. And, I mean, despite the cataclysm that wiped out the dinosaurs and pretty much a good portion of the planet, if you have so many of these animals out there, I mean, their population must have been in the millions and millions at this point, different species, too, and spread out throughout the globe, it is possible that there are sections of ocean that weren't affected by the resultant impact winter caused by the asteroid impact. I mean, it's, it's possible. I wouldn't argue against it. No, part of the idea of being doing research is we have to be open to possibilities. Otherwise, you can miss a great opportunity that's right in front of you if you don't have the, the powers of observation or being open enough to actually look at it and examine it. And I believe that the super predator situation is one such incident. And nobody wants to be the one to say, oh, it was, uh, it was a pilosaurus or it was a, uh, a marine crocodile that we don't know about or something like that. Nobody wants to put their reputation online and come out and say that. But at the same time, nothing else that we know of 
seems to fit the profile of whatever ate shark out. That's just mm-hmm. the way it is. I mean, you, you can't definitively say it with any of these other animals because none of them fit. They just don't. Well, there are large chunks of the South Pacific that there are no islands. There's nothing out there but water. You know, there's plenty for anything to hide out there. Yeah, I, I, I would think that as man, I mean, a lot. There've been a lot of sightings that I, I researched doing doing book research of sea monsters, and some of the more impressive ones had taken place before we had steel ships and engines and all that. It would seem to me that a large sailboat would be far more likely to encounter one of these creatures or a boat that was just sitting at anchor or drifting because the sounds of a large outboard given off by a ship or even a, a big boat would probably be very disruptive to a marine animal like that. And especially if they've had any kind of experience like wolves with people, these animals are going to keep away. You know, they may be air breeders, but they spend 99.999% of their time submerged. So when one comes up for air, it's not like it's going to stick its head out of the water and say, hey, here I am. You know, their blowholes are on the top of their skulls. They basically just expose that. They blow, and then they submerge. And from a distance, any of these animals would be assumed to be a whale. You know, yeah. you have to get right up on top of it to see otherwise. Uh, if they are out there, I would think an aerial drone might be our best bet at getting some sort of data. If it well, hasn't been acquired already, I'd like, to, I'd like to say that recent evidence has shown that mosasaurs were much more fishy than had originally been assumed. Like now they know that they had uh, shark-like tail flukes, and that was a fairly recent discovery. Yeah, that total fin definitely indicates that you're talking about a maneuverable, fast-moving animal. And mm-hmm. I never addressed this before, but I'll say it now. My personal theory, I, I do a lot of fishing, as people know. and I've caught you know, sharks many times, different species. Pretty much all your sharks out there, uh, the upper coral fin is long, either the same size or longer than the bottom one. Whereas with the mosasaur, it appears to have been the opposite, if you've noticed that. The lower fin, the lower lobe, is larger than the upper. And mm-hmm. this is, in my humble opinion, and I don't claim to be a top paleontologist or anything like that, but common sense approach to things would seem to be because you're talking about an animal that is an air breeder. So it would want to be able to go to the surface faster if need be in order to breathe. So a shark doesn't have that problem or condition, so it's more designed to be able to dive faster, whether it's in pursuit of prey or, you know, avoiding the surface. Which is why it's hell vertebrae go up into the upper lobe rather than the lower lobe. Right. And the mosasaur would want to be able to surface faster if need be coming up from a deep dive or something like that. And that's why I believe that the lower lobe in the mosasaurs was longer than the upper. And in terms of like flat out propulsion, either way, you're going to get a lot of forward thrust, but you get a little <clears> extra <throat> lift when needed if the, lobe, the lower lobe is longer and then obviously you're just 
aligning your fins for angle of ascent. So yeah. just a little point I, you know, get out there. So do you want to move on to the uh, the one off Cornwall? Uh, the is it the fin back that breached? Yeah. I mean, uh, that stranded itself. Sure, we could yeah. talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just check my notes. <laughs> it's been a while. So basically, okay, we're talking about the August 13, 2012 incident. I thought it was 2013. I don't know. I might have. I think it wrong January there. 2013. That's when it was. I have all the I can bring it up in a second here. Sure. But while you're doing that, so basically, though, we're looking at a 65 approximately foot finback whale that stranded itself on the beach off the St. Austell coast of England. And this was heavily documented by pictures and video footage. And according to the reports, the whale basically swam into the shallows and deliberately stayed there until the tide came out, leaving it stranded. So it had every opportunity to leave, but it didn't. And it ended up getting beached, and the whale was reported as being malnourished, extremely distressed, and it had bad lacerations to its face and eyes and its jaw, and it also had a bunch of abdominal wounds, which were not made available to the public either in picture or video. And this is the animal. It stayed there basically until it died, and I guess the body was then disposed of. Uh, Then also what was interesting to me was that there were a a team of divers showed up to examine the animal in the water. So uh, it was an interesting situation. Anyway, so what struck me as odd about the whale was uh, when I looked at the photographs of its face. And it had this series of deep punctures running along its lower jaw that kind of formed like a U-shaped pattern. And I was staring at the pictures I remember when I was doing some research, and I just looked at it, and it struck me as very similar to the bite pattern one would get from certain animals, which are supposed mm-hmm. to be extinct. You know, like uh, some sort of enormous crocodile, or mosasaur, or biosaur, something along those lines. You know, and I started like digging into it, trying to get more information. But yeah. uh, it looks to me like the whale. Well, obviously, the whale deliberately swam into the shallows, and it deliberately stranded itself. So then the question yeah. is, why? Does, why does a finback whale do that? And if you put all the pieces together. You, one could make it a case that this animal was attacked by something and it managed to fight its way free and it maybe its pursuer was still out there and it decided to just, how can I say this, commit suicide. You know, a choice between being eaten or between dying on the beach. I think it's possible that the animal opted to do that. Yeah, well, if you remember, Dale and I, Dale... Uh Drennan worked mm-hmm. with you on this, and we were able to take um, diagrams of pliosaurs and mosasaurs 
and sort of fit them on the wounds that you see in the pictures on the Fentwell, which is very interesting. Yeah, it, it was because it the first the first thing is people would try and say, well, those that's not a bite mark. I was you know people were telling me those were one person said they were um, sores or something like that, you know, or lesions. I think the term was. And yeah. another person said they were caused by impacts with, you know, rocks and the surface and stuff. And my response is, well, those are some darn organized lesions or rocks, let me tell you, because the pattern is pretty much unmistakable. In fact, there's actually, uh, like, almost like a second overlay to it. And yeah. that, that didn't make sense to me. Um, you know, the, the, the first thing is, is if you – lesions was out. It was ridiculous. Those are actually holes in the animal's face. And if, if the animal impacted on anything in the surf or anything like that, these are open, then it would be bleeding. The whale was still alive. You can see it thrashing around in the video, but it's not bleeding. And I've seen pictures of stranded whales that had, you know, cuts in their jaw and face from rocks and stuff, and they bleed. This whale's not bleeding. It doesn't have any blood, which tells me that the injury happened out, out at sea. Maybe well, the, it would be rather an odd coincidence that it has the pattern mm-hmm. of teeth on a jaw of something like like a sperm whale or a mosasaur or a plyosaur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sperm whale one, as I recall, it didn't fit in terms of the tooth pattern like that, which left one of the other supposedly extinct culprits uh, to, to take the rap or something. Mosasaurus, uh, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Basilosaurus had those, uh, I mean, it did have the space teeth in the front, but then it had those shearing molars yeah, going the, first back. They weren't homodont teeth. They were all the same. They were, you know, the molars looked almost like a great white shark teeth with points on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did get an interesting email from one person who uh, addressed it, and he told me that he, he was a... I believe a herpetologist that worked at one of the zoos and was considered to be quite the expert on bites from reptiles. And he told me at first glance that he thought that that was definitely a reptile bite. But then he, his concern was, however, that the wounds didn't appear deep enough in order to justify that. And my such, you know, response to that is, if this animal is so emaciated and distressed and it has abdominal wounds in addition to that, I would be inclined to think it's possible that first of all, it was attacked out of sea. And whatever attacked it tried to take it down probably by attacking it from below in the abdominal region. I mean, these divers were there for some reason looking at these wounds. I don't recall seeing a lot of whale beachings, whale strandings, where a team of divers shows up to go into the water and look at the animal's wounds under there. I don't even know why these people showed up in the first place. And that seemed a little strange to me, but what do I know? But so if this animal was attacked at sea repeatedly, it is possible that it was pursued and harried by a predator was trying to drag it down. Maybe it was sick already. Maybe the its pursuer kept attacking it, you know, and preventing it from eating, trying to, you know, wear it down like a Komodo dragon, puts a bite on something and it keeps after it or something. But I think that if the animal, first off, was bitten at sea days earlier, those wounds would certainly, number one, stop bleeding and would probably be very infected as well, which means you're talking about the surrounding tissue swelling up a lot of pus. And if you look in the picture, they are, like, 
bright pink color, which would seem to potentially indicate that type of infection. Mm-hmm. All I know is, without having been there firsthand and without seeing the other side of the whale space, which would have been great, it's impossible to really say. You know, if we could yeah. have seen the other side of the whale's head, that would have ruled out a sperm whale right away or not. If there were no wounds on the other side or just some bruising, then you could say, hey, this was some sort of sperm whale that for some reason attacked its fin back because sperm whales only have teeth in the lower jaw. But if there was a matched set of those punctures on the other side of the whale's head, then you definitely got to come to the conclusion that something put the bite on this animal. Yeah. Well, you know, we have have fossilized mosasaur bite marks on ammonite shells that show what a mosasaur's bite mark pattern looks like, and we can we can compare that with wounds that you see on the finback whale. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, between what happened with Shark Alpha, all the sightings that I've read about, you know, even going back to the, the World War One submarine, I mean, there have been so many incidents that people have seen things, and I mean, Shark Alpha wasn't killed that long ago, and this whale was only a couple years ago. It's distinctly possible there's some sort of reptile swimming around out there. And well, uh, there's not going to be one of them. Cornwall has a long history of sightings of a dinosaur-like sea monster, which is known by the name of Morgower, which translates as sea giants. And these reports go back to the 1870s. But most of those reports are describing... Uh, a long-necked plesiosaur-type creature. Mm-hmm. Which, it had, if it had a large enough head, it might be responsible for something like this. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Well, it would have to be a pretty sizable animal because yeah. my calculations, in order to encompass that finback's whole face like that, the predator would have had to have a skull at least 10 feet long in order to pull that off. You know, mm-hmm. maybe like a Romalaisaur or something like that. I mean, anything's possible. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's Romalaisaurs you're talking about. Technically, they're considered pliosaurs, but they had fairly long long necks. So, you know, when you get into this, trying to break the plesiosaurs down into pliosaurs and, and long-necked plesiosaurs, there's a lot of ones that are in the middle. I mean, there's, you, there's a whole spectrum of intermediate types that makes that extremely difficult to to do sometimes. Well, you have to keep into account also, we're talking about since the end of the Cretaceous is 65, 66 million years. And yeah. I've been known to take some artistic liberties with the development of, for example, the pliosaur species that I featured in the Cronus Rising series. Uh, but anything can happen in 65 million years of evolution. These animals Absolutely. could adapt and change over the eons. Yeah, their swimming patterns, their size, their shape. They could develop sonar. They could, you know, their temperatures could range. I mean, anything can happen. So well, yeah, I don't you think a, you can get something like a sixty-five foot thin whale from a little wolf-like animal that was living on the exactly. That's what can so, happen in sixty-five million years. I mean, and it's a known fact that 90 or 95 percent of the oceans are completely unexplored. Now, the popular saying is, "We know more about the surface of the moon than we do the oceans," and that's true. So, anybody that's going to write off anything from 
a potentially enormous marine reptile that feeds on whales to squid the size of, well, two buses put together, you'd have to be very limited in your imagination to think that the oceans could not contain creatures of that type. Mm-hmm. What's next? Well, <clears throat> I guess we should talk about Trunco. Trunco Bunko, maybe, like uh, my article? Yeah, maybe the thing for me to do is read the Wikipedia entry about Trunco and then let you take it from there. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, okay, let me bring this up. Um, that might here. take a bit. No, I get the. I just got to find the file. I've got it here. Here it is. So just bear with me a minute here for the file to open up. This happened in oh. South Africa in 1924. Okay. Uh, this is from Wikipedia. Trunco is the nickname for an animal at Globster, reportedly sighted in Margate, South Africa. On 25th October 1924, according to an article entitled Fish Like a Polar Bear, published in the December 27th, 1924 edition of London's Daily Mail, the animal was reputedly first seen off the coast battling two killer whales, which fought the unusual creature for three hours. It used its tail to attack the whales and reportedly lifted itself out of water by about 20 feet. One of the witnesses, Hugh Balance, described the animal as looking like a giant polar bear during a final fight. The creature reportedly, reputedly washed up on Margate Beach, but despite being there for 10 days, no scientist ever investigated the carcass while it was beached. So no reliable description has been published, and until September 2010, it was assumed that no photographs of it had ever been published. Some people who have never been identified were reported to have described the animal as possessing snowy white fur, an elephantine trunk, a lobster-like tail, and a carcass devoid of blood. While it was beached, the animal was measured by beach doors and turned out to be 47 feet in length, 10 feet wide and 5 feet high, with the trunk's length being 5 feet, the trunk's diameter 14 inches, the tail 10 feet, and the fur being 8 inches long. The trunk was said to be attached directly to the animal's torso, as no head was visible on the carcass. For this feature, the animal was dubbed Trunko by British cryptozoologist Carl Schuker in his 1996 book, The Unexplained. In the 27th March 1925 edition of the Charlie Roy Mail in Charlie Roy, Pennsylvania, an article entitled Whale Slain by Harry Monster reported that the whales there were killed by a strange creature which was washed up on the beach, exhausted and fell unconscious, but made its way back into the ocean and swam away after 10 days, never to be seen again. Wow, that's a, that's a hell of a nap. I'm telling you, you know how these stories get twisted around. Many suggestions have been made to explain this phenomenon, 
<clears throat> the most common explanation being that Trunco was the carcass of a large whale basking shark or whale shark whose body's decay made it appear furry that the orcas were feasting on its corpse. It has also been suggested that Trunco was a sighting of a strange-looking new species of a huge whale, unknown pinniped or serenian. One of the more skeptical explanations was an albionic southern elephant seal. It has generally been considered to be a crypt, part of the field of cryptozoology. On September 6, 2010, Carl Schuker announced that a hitherto unknown photograph of Trunco had been discovered by German cryptozoologist Marcus Himmler on the website of the Margate Business Association, and Schuker recognized from this photo that Trunco had been nothing more than a globster, i.e. a massive, tough skin sack of blubber containing collagen that is sometimes left behind when a whale dies and its skull and skeleton have separated from the skin and sunk to the sea bottom. The photo had been snapped by Johannesburg, Photographer A.C. Jones, who had visited Trunco's remains while they were beached. Three days later, Schuker revealed that he and Himmler had independently discovered two more photos of Trunco by Jones that had been published in the August 1925 issue of Wide World magazine. These close-up photos showed, showed a classic glop Trunco. This white fur to be exposed connected tissue fibers. It was the sight of two whales some distance out to sea tossing this globstrophus mass into the air, a common practice that had fooled observers on Margate Beach into assuming it was alive. Perhaps the most surprising aspect of this revelation is that two photos of the Trunco carcass had been published in a mainstream magazine in 1925 yet had somehow been entirely overlooked by the zoological and cryptozoological community for the next 85 years. In March 2011, a fourth photograph of Troncos was discovered in the archives of Margate Museum in South Africa by Bianca Buckley. <clears throat> so that's the end of the uh, Wikipedia article. So if you want to take it from there. Are you tired? <laughs> What's that? That was. I said that. Are you tired? Because that was quite a read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... Okay, so I did a piece actually. Uh, it was earlier this year, maybe, or late last year, called Trunco Bunko that I had on. Uh, it was on Crypto Mundo and on my site, and and I initially got interested in it when I saw the artist depiction of Trunco by Bill Asperson. And I was looking at it, and it's, I, I realized right away that there was something about it. And then I looked at the, the Wikipedia article also, and it dawned on me that basically the trunk of the animal was basically a male whale's exposed organ. And if you look at a, any photos you can Google online of whales mating or anything like that, uh, this is basically what it looks like. And this would fit with a description, of course, of the trunk, we're calling it, coming out of the torso of the animal. Um, you know, the whole notion of a lobster, to me, I mean, I am sure, don't get me wrong, that this carcass is very dilapidated, decayed, and a, almost a gelatinous mass after 10 days of sea, et cetera. Um, the whiteness would be common, and to be perfectly frank, this fourth photo that was mentioned, actually, I have it on my website. 
it's a frontal view of Tronco. And if you look at it, I put two, the photo next to it, the face of a right whale head on, the, the similarity between the two is unmistakable. Except, of course, that Tronco is this nasty, rotting mass that Sagmolotipase. But you can actually see in the photo, it has the shape of a white, white whale's ongoing, the face, the jaw, the chin, everything like that. So in my opinion, and I also have researched it, for example, white whales, there are many, not many, but it is not uncommon for white whales to be white, partially white, mostly white, etc. You can look it up and see all the time. So the first thing is, if you look at the actual witness's description, they're describing two orcas attacking something and a three-hour battle. They're talking about it using its tail to attack the whales. Now, anybody who's seen baleen whales, sperm whales, for example, attacked by orcas, what is their main line of defense against the killer whales? Where they used to fight? I'm asking you, Scott. What, what would a baleen whale use to fend off an attack by killer whales? Tail. Right. It swoops. They swat at them on the surface, below the surface. That's what they try and do. Sperm whales actually form that marguerite formation where they have their tails out. You know, their heads in, protecting wounded members of the pod, and they try and fight off the whale. So basically, that's the first thing. The description describes a three-hour fight, this animal using its tail, lifting itself out of the water 20 feet, and looking like a giant polar bear. I would think you have a a white whale that's white or whitish. The workers see an opportunity. It's an easy target because he's white and very easy to spot. You know, the whale puts up a ferocious struggle. It's obviously a male whale. Maybe they even interrupted him during mating season, but if, I'm sure if he got stressed enough, you know, we, anyway, without getting into grossness or anything, but, and eventually the whale was killed. You know, the I notion that it would be a globster doesn't fit because of the fact that you've got these witnesses' descriptions and measurements of the actual carcass. You're talking 47 feet long. That's almost 50 feet and 10 feet wide. But then they talk about the tail being 10 feet across. So obviously it had a tail. You know, it had flukes. And those proportions, mm-hmm. if you measure it out, would match for a whale in that size range. You know, the fur, and you're an expert on these things, would obviously be connective tissue deteriorating and forming this fibrous like exterior. So all in all, oh, wait, um, I was, somebody was trying to tell me also that the trunk was really a rib or something like that. And when a lobster is formed, the, the rest of the body of the whale falls away. So how would this lone rib be embedded in this you know, collection of fat? That didn't make any sense. How would a rib survive three hours of orcas tossing it into the air? That doesn't make sense either. And if this chunk was just a giant piece of blubber that was 47 feet long, 5 feet high, and 10 feet thick, it would have to weigh 40 tons or more. There's no way workers are going to be pushing that out of the water 20 feet at a shot for three hours. And I can't picture killer whale playing, playing with a rotting mass of disgusting stuff like that for three hours anyway. It just, uh, that doesn't make any sense either. Uh, you know, a rib is not going to survive, though, being tossed around for three hours in a giant mass of blubber like that by, you know, thrown 20 feet into the air and all this other stuff. And if you look at the photos... The one photo looks to me like the tapered end of the whale's carcass, but the one of the head, head-on, is an unmistakable rotting face of a right whale. Uh, well, even, all there is to it. 
even uh, the people who think it's a globster think that in mm-hmm. this case that there was part of the skeleton left inside Trunco. Right, which even, means it's even not a lobster. You say it's a lobster. You know, in other words, right. it wasn't just a piece of skin like, say, the St. Augustine lobster or the mm-hmm. Chilean lobster. Well, I would be inclined to agree that it was basically a whale that was so rotted that it, it was starting to sag out and just come apart. But, I mean, you're going to have the whale's structure. You're going to have its head. You're going to have flukes. And you're going to have its organs. For, you know, sticking out there. I mean, they've got a description of the length and the diameter and everything else. God bless the whale. But, uh, yeah. you, know, this is, you know, this is not a globster. It, it's the, the opposite definition of a globster. This is just a rotting whale carcass. The, the trunk is not a rib, and people would certainly have recognized a rib if they saw one. I mean, let's be realistic here. Okay? They yeah. describe it as elephantine, etc. You know, this is the male whale that's his organ hanging out there, coming from the trunk of the body, which is why there's no head where the, quote, trunk is, etc. And that's what you're looking at. Um, my bet is you're looking at a, a, a whitish white whale, of which I could send you 50 different photos of, or even an all-white one. You know, it got attacked and mauled and fought for its life against a couple of orcas. It was eventually killed, died from its wounds there or later, washes ashore, people measure it, you know, then it starts to rot. You get a couple of pictures. You've got this gelatinous mass mm-hmm. there, and, you know, that's the story. I mean, no disrespect yeah. to the ending of the researchers, but that last photo, that, you know, from 2011, of the head of the animal is pretty much unmistakable. There's no, you know, escaping that similarity of structure, the jaw, the face, everything like that. Uh, that's what it is. It's not a globster. It's not an unknown animal. It's a rotting whale carcass, in my humble opinion. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> marine biologist Charles Paxton wrote a paper a few years ago about whale penises being <clears throat> mistaken for long necks of sea serpents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen some of those one, articles. One, uh, one famous case that he brought up was uh, the 1875 Pauline incident. The whaling ship Pauline saw a sperm whale either fighting with a sea serpent or possibly a giant squid, and and you could see Mm -hmm. some kind of a large eel-like creature or tentacle wrapped around the sperm whale. Mm -hmm. And Paxton is suggesting that what was actually seen was possibly two whales mating and that what Mm -hmm. tentacle-looking or sea serpent-looking object was, was a penis. Yeah, it, it it happens. I've I've seen documentaries where you know groups of especially the adolescent male sperm whales, you know they get very excited. You know even when they're not mating groups, when there's cows around, things of that nature. It's uh, you know it wouldn't surprise me. I mean the blue whale has the largest penis known. I think it's like up to ten feet or something like that. So yeah, uh, another, you know trunkos. Another famous uh, sea serpent. Um, citing that Paxton suggested was the same thing was the uh, Hans Egade sea serpent I think from 1734 off Greenland mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I believe I covered about, that actually we've got about 8 minutes left did you want to touch on the, the uh, plesiosaur neck theory 
Sure, absolutely. Go ahead. By all means. Yeah, it's not often that I get to utilize my uh, fishing experience with my research, but a lot of people, uh, well, plesiosaurs obviously have long necks, especially your elastomosaurs. Uh, you know, not, we're not talking about your plesiosaur morphs with a giant head and short necks, but your classic nesty type plesiosaurs, your personal favorites, your long necks. Yep. Um, you know, they have necks anywhere from a half to as long as their entire body. Uh, we know these are piscivore fish-eating animals from their teeth. And so the question has abounded since they were first discovered as to why they had these very long serpentine-like necks. And obviously, theories have changed over the decades in terms of how flexible the necks were, whether they could lift them out of the water and so forth and so on. But I basically expressed my theory, which was, you know, well-received, I like, that of why the neck of the plesier was as long as it was. And there have been a lot of theories. I mean, people have said that the animal would, uh, I think one person said that it had, like, sensors in it that it could use, like, magnetic or something like that to scan the, the seafloor. Another person said that it stored stones in the neck. Somebody else had a theory that it was, like, an electric eel. Some, you know, people have said that they could constrict things, which obviously we know is not the case. Now, all different versions of that. The one that was closest to it was that the idea that the, the, the I'm sorry, the fish, a school of fish would not be able to, or a fish would be able to sense the giant creature following it or approaching it because of the long neck and the head, and then it would be able to strike and grab something from the school, that type of thing. And that one was pretty much close to the theory, but in terms of the how and the why was what I really got to get into and cover. And what my theory, which, once again, I take a common-sense approach to things, my theory is that a plesiosaur's neck correlates directly to the defensive capabilities of the lateral line of the species of fish that it favors to hunt. And when I say a lateral line, fish have sensory organs that run along their bodies to their tails, and these organs, called a lateral line, are highly sensitive to changes in water pressure. This keeps them, when you see a school changing direction at the same time, it's why they don't all smash into one another. It lets them maneuver in the dark. It lets them feed in the dark. It also lets them know of an approaching predator because when an animal moves through the water, it displaces water. Just like when you see dolphins riding on the bow of a ship, that ship is pushing all that water. So the dolphin likes to do that because it's getting pushed along for free ride and having fun. So when a fish is approached by a predator, especially at high speed, it feels that pressure wave coming at it. So a plesiosaur, when it hunts, would basically approach a school of fish from the back. This is the best way to do it for the animal because the eyes are obviously in the front. The school cannot see the, the plesiosaur coming. Plesiosaurs are fast. They're maneuverable, but so are the fish that they're chasing. So they don't want to get into a whole pursue chasing this way, that way, burning a lot of energy, burning a lot of calories, et cetera. And they don't want to do all this work for just one strike and then scatter the school. They want to be able to feed what I call almost like grazing, more or less. So what would happen is the plesiosaur approaches the school and it brings its head right up in there while keeping the body a long distance away. The fish have a limit to their lateral line. So without the body that plesiosaur pushing all the water, because it's 10, 20 feet away or something like that, they don't feel it coming. All they feel is the head approaching. And since the head is the same size as the fish is eating, it's not an alarm to the fish. So they continue to swim. 
the plesiosaur horse swims right up to the school, maybe even squeezes its head between two fish in the school, bam, snaps to the side, grabs a meal, and then just drops right back. Minimal disruption to the school of fish. It enjoys its meal, swallows it down, and then resumes its pursuit. Hanging back a little bit, inserts its head again, bang, grabs the next one, bang, grabs the next one. You're not going to do all that work and get one foot-long fish to feed an animal that could weigh several tons. That's not going to do. So it wants to keep feeding and feeding and feeding until it's gorgeous itself. This allows the plesiosaur to do that. It's not disrupting the school. They're not all scattering into the wind and leaving it with just one small smack. It's able to keep coming along like you eating potato chips. You pick a chip. You pick another well, chip. You pick another chip. That's kind of the strategy that the uh, the leatherback turtle does. It's constantly eating lots of small jellyfish. Right. But jellyfish are not fast and maneuverable. So the leatherback doesn't have that disadvantage. See, the plesiosaur is limited because its teeth are designed, they're needles. You know, they're fish catching hooks, basically. So mm-hmm. the biggest thing it can eat is something about the size of its head. See? Yeah, because it's not like a snake where like a right. snake or a mosasaur. Right. So it's able to basically, though, it has that, that gullet skin that stretches a little bit. So it could basically ingest a fish about the size of its head. But one fish the size of its head is not a meal going to make. It might need 10, 15, 20 fish, depending on the size of the animal. So its goal, its strategy, and the reason it has evolved this long neck is to, like an arms race, it is offset the fish's ability to sense its approach via their lateral line. So it, to them, it's just a harmless other member of the score shoal just swimming along. Oh, hey, what happened to Charlie? Wasn't he here a second ago? I don't know. And another fish is gone, and another and another. And this works out evolution-wise because it gives the plesiosaur or elastomosaur an almost unlimited food supply. And, of course, though, it's preying on the fish that are at the end of the school, which would be your slower, weaker, injured, sick, ill, sick, what is it, sick, lame, and lazy, or whatever the term is in the military. You know, it's yeah. picking off basically the less genetically sound members of the school in addition. So well, the fish are stronger. We're about result. out of time now, so I guess we need to wrap it up and say our goodbyes. And it's uh, oh, I'm sorry I ran it on and on, Scott. Conversation. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure being here, and I hope I didn't take up too much or hog too much of the conversation. Oh, no, absolutely not. Um, you're the guest. I wanted you to do most of the talking anyway. Um, well, thank you. I don't get to do that at home, so it's a pleasure. <laughs> yeah. So thanks again for being on, and people, if you haven't read Max's novels, please, please do. And uh, thanks again, Max, and um, have a good day. You too. Take care.